hear from three excellent uh, speakers. Um, I'll introduce them briefly now. All the details are in the packs. Uh, first of all, we're going to hear from Sherry Peck, who is the uh, Chief Executive Officer of Safer London, an organisation which helps uh, young people, well, exactly what we've just been talking about, really, stay resilient and get, and get out of gangs and, and, and associated crime and exploitation. Uh, then we're going to hear from Will, Lund Will Linden, who's the co-deputy director of the Violence Reduction Unit in Scotland. Um, on the, here, a lot of focus on what's happened in Scotland. Um, Will was telling me it's, it's a bit like... Um, uh, what did you say? TripAdvisor. He's, he's a bit like TripAdvisor at the moment. And it's sort of the number of people going to visit uh, Glasgow to ask them, what did you do, and what's a public health approach, and so on. Um, so they've been very busy uh, hosting uh, lots of people from south of the border to talk about what they've done there, but Will is going to talk about some of the wider lessons from that work, which will be really interesting. Um, and then we've got Mark Burns-Williamson, who uh, will be known to many of you, who's the uh, Police and Crime Commissioner for West Yorkshire, and indeed the Chair of the uh, Association of Police and Crime Commissioners. Um, so they're going to talk for 15 minutes each, uh, and then we'll open it up for uh, a wider discussion. So, Sherry, over to you. I'm a bit of a technophobe, so please excuse me. Um... And I have to say, first of all, I was guilty as well of taking the high road up to Glasgow. And I think I met you, um, Will, you'd just flown in from Canada and was asleep <laughs> on a sofa, but was, but was very kind. I thought, oh, I thought I'd lost the thingy and gave me a lot of advice when I started. So my name's Sherry Peck. Um, I'm really quickly just going to fly, fly, tell you a little bit about Safer London. going to give you some of the headlines from our work, really, because I think it's really important that you see some of the themes that are coming out of our work. And then I was asked to talk about this concept of preventing harm and building resilience. And for me, that sits in, in three levels. That's within the individual, that's also within communities, but also wider societies. Um, and we haven't got all of the answers, but we're certainly learning very quickly. So, Safer London, what is it? Now, Safer London grew out of the Metropolitan Police. We were the grant-giving arm of the Metropolitan Police. I think we gave away the Proceeds of Crimes Fund. Um, been around about 17, no, about 12 years, I believe, but we turned into a delivery arm about six or seven years ago. Cressida Dix is our president. Um, we still work very, very closely with the police, and I don't ever want anything that I say to be interpreted as anti-police. I just think that the, this is a really complex area and I really, really believe that it's important that we all bring something to it. Now, we work in every London borough, which I think is relatively unique. Not many um, charities do that. And we work with children and young people between the ages of eight and right up to about the age of 29. You will hear me talking about children a lot. I think it's really important that we remember that a lot of these young people that we work with are children. I'm sadly old enough to remember when we used to talk about child prostitutes, and I cringe as I look back now, as I'm sure many of us do, when we use that type of language about young people that were being exploited. And I think unless we're really careful and get a grip of our language and our thinking, we're going to feel exactly the same when we talk about young people that are involved in gangs, county lines, and involved in youth violence. So I will talk about children. Safer London now focuses on exploitation and young people affected by violence. We're trying to begin to move away around of, of the notion of using gangs. Um, it's, it's very contested in some communities, and many young people will tell you if you're a group of white children 
playing out on the street, you're a group of white children playing out on the street. If you're a group of black children playing out on the street, all of a sudden you're a member of a gang. So we're really moving away from that in our language and talking about young people that are affected by violence and exploitation. The way we work is that we're endeavouring to become a trauma-informed organisation. I know everybody talks about that the whole time. We've got a five-year action plan to get us to that point where we will be trauma-informed. We're ende endeavouring to embed our work within a contextual safeguarding framework. I thought those case studies were a really, really useful opportunity to talk, but one of the things that I think came out in our group was that the social care system is set up to support young people that are primarily victims of harm within their own families or from a significant other. And that, in fact, what we're finding in our work in London is that young people are more at risk in the context external to their families. So often you will hear that these young people are safe in their homes, but it's when they move outside. And I would say to any of you that have not read the work by Dr. Carleen Furman that you do, it's really, really, really... I mean, it's absolute common sense. You know, when you read something and think, why didn't we think of that 10, 15 years ago? But she did an excellent TED Talk recently, if you want, you know, a 15-minute bite-sized bit. But please, please think about that. I think the other thing as well is that our responses are gender-informed. We're, we're definitely a Volvo organisation. We're borrowing um, rapidly some of the MVP work from Scotland, which is looking at some of the, the things around toxic masculinities. Um, and one of the things, I've made a list of things that I wanted to remember um, to talk about, which I've now left on the table there, but one of the things that I wanted to contest that came out of this morning was this notion of young women's involvement in gangs. That what we find is that around 4 or 5% of the young women that are coming through our programme in London, um, of the young people that are coming through our programme in London, are young women. And they're not all victims of sexual violence in gangs. Some of them are gang nominals. One of them actually told me that she was involved in a raid and completely overlooked because she was a young woman. So please, please, please do not think that young women are not involved because they absolutely are. So when I took over at Safer London, one of the things that I'm a great believer in is if you don't understand a problem, you can't even begin to solve a problem. So for me, there was a lot of, of work around looking at what created, what made young people get involved in violence. Because I don't believe it's a choice. I really don't. Um, I went around and looked at some of the work that I think shows, the evidence shows that it's working, and I won't talk about what I learned from Scotland, um, and I'm still learning from Scotland. As I say, they're very generous, um, and they must be sick to death. Although, no, Niven tells me you're not sick to death of people from the South going up. So, but, you Never know, doesn't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, for me, it was really important that we looked at some of the headlines of what was important. So the first thing I would say in, in an environment like this is, as a country, we can't police our way out of this crisis. It's a complex issue that needs a multi-agency, long-term, non-politicised response. And it does need to be non-politicised, says the woman that gets the bulk of her funding from the Mayor's office in London. Um, but for me, it's really important, and I'll let Will pick up on that. Um, it's probably easier for you two than me to do that. Um, we're seeing various forms of exploitation. A few years ago, even when I took over at Safer London, we talked about sexual exploitation. But in fact, what we see is the intersectionalities of all of those exploitations are just everywhere. And it's very rare that one person is only experiencing one type of exploitation. 
Um, and the circumstances where young people are affected by violence are, are vast. So that's sexual criminal, you know, there's all sorts. The one thing that I would say to you is that it's all very different and each child will experience it in a very different way and will respond in a very different way. And we see that from our case files. Recognise both within our work and in our research are some key themes. The first thing is, is this narrative that's playing out in the UK at the moment is unhelpful and often counterproductive. We're whipping up this, this feeling of fear. You know, we're, we're creating this story about a feral group of predominantly young black men that are charging around London that are bringing violence to our streets. And that is not helpful. It really isn't. You know, I cannot stress enough, I really don't like seeing pictures of knives. And it just simply increases the fear that young people are experiencing in London. So that narrative isn't helpful. This victim-perpetrator divide is unhelpful and almost non-existent. If you look at our case files, so in some of our work, we run a harmful sexual behaviour programme. Um, and it's really, really, really difficult to get funding for very difficult to get funding for um, because people think that what I want is money to work with sexual perpetrators. If you look at the case files of the young men that have gone through that, that system, all of them are victims. A hundred percent of them are victims. So for me, that victim-perpetrator divide is really unhelpful. We cannot ignore the fact that peers have a massive influence it's normalising and there's also coercion. So for me, young people and their influence on other young people is, is crucial in all of this. And that's why we're really keen to get the funding to roll out the MVP work. The impact of adolescent brain development and the toxic environment is massively underestimated. So, you know, when you turn 18, you don't all of a sudden grow up. You know, we, a lot of, if any of you have read the work of Sarah Jane Blakemore, where she talks about brain development up to about the ages of 25, 26, my feeling would be that actually we are almost keeping young people in a state of, of childhood now because you can't get employment, you can't get your own home, you can't start your own family. And it's not unusual for me to come across 29-year-old, 30-year-old young men that are sleeping on their mum's sofa. And actually that, that doesn't help them mature, if you like. So we began to look at what are some of the problems. And for me, in order to build resilience, you have to understand what it's about. Now, resilience for me, and I've stolen this from Lisa Cherry, and her website is um, mentioned there. Resilience is not about character or grit. It's built within the relationships and the resources between individuals, communities, and the societies in which they live in. We had a very brief conversation um, in our case study group where we talked about adverse childhood experiences. And I've said there's probably no one in this room that hasn't had some form of adverse childhood experience, but the reason you're sitting here and not out on the streets is because someone helped you build some of that resilience. And that's the thing that we have to do, and that's the thing that we have to think about. So, building resilience within individuals. As I say, this whole thing, this whole narrative around whether or not these young people and children are perpetrators or victims demonstrates that many of them, many of them are victims. And these are the, the accepted aces um, that I'm sure everybody's familiar with. And if you're not, it's probably worth looking at. We've trained all of our staff in both recognising what the aces are and how young people may act out in response to having a number of adverse childhood experiences. I wish I'd written in my notes here, but I didn't, that, that 
for young people that have had three or four of these, the, the amount of um, the increase in suicide, which may respond to your question, goes up enormously. You know, obesity is linked to adverse childhood experience. Hey, my mum and dad died when I was little. Go figure that I've never been able to stick to a diet. You know, it's not an excuse for things, but it definitely, definitely has an impact on all of us in lots of different ways. I'm just... The other thing that I would like to say as well is that, you know, for me, this is a quote. I, if any of you have not read the work of James Gilligan, I would suggest that you do. Because the other thing for young people in particular is this concept of shame. It's coming up time and time and time again. And this is a really, really good quote from James Gilligan. Um, these slides will be shared, I'm assuming, will they? So I won't read you that, but I'd ask you to read it, and it's good because I didn't know how you felt about me swearing. <laughs> Building resilience within communities. Well, context is critical. We need to understand and acknowledge the context that individuals are socialised into and are acting within. I come from a working class community. My son's the first young man in my family to be able to read and write. But I could get access to housing, access to, um, to free university education, and there were jobs available. That isn't the same now. We're creating a toxic environment that we're asking young people to work in. And in London, that's particularly acute. Communities are key, but often ignored. So when services are commissioned from people like myself, very often they'll ask you to work with the child, but that work around the family and in the family, uh, in the communities that they work within, uh, you can't get funding for that piece of work. And it's absolutely counterproductive not to work with communities. And I've already talked about this notion of um, the need to change the narrative. I would be doing a disservice if I came here and didn't talk about race. You cannot ignore the factor of race. In London, you absolutely cannot ignore it. Um, and we need to build resilience in those communities by tackling social injustice and inequality. And they are no small things that we have to do. But we are talking about, I mean, the Windrush saga um, goes on and on and on. If it, people haven't, and the, the last thing that I really want to talk about is resilience within societies. We know that violence is linked to inequality and social injustice. If you've not read The Spirit Level, and I don't know if people have seen this book, it's free on the internet, and what it clearly does is demonstrates internationally the link between inequality and violence. And until we deal with that, all of the money that you put into services, all of the money and investment we put into communities and children and young people, it's not going to make the slightest bit of difference. In some parts of London, Tower Hamlets, for example, you've got some of the poorest children looking at some of the wealthiest people in the world in the Docklands. And are we surprised that these young people then feel that they've got no hope, they've got nothing to lose? I'm going to end on this. I, I don't think people that have seen me ever talk before will ever see me not make reference to Frederick Douglass. Um, this was the 24th anniversary of emancipation, 1886 this was. And he said, where justice is denied, where poverty is enforced, where ignorance prevails, and where any one class is made to feel that society is in an organised conspiracy to oppress, rob and degrade them, neither person nor property will be safe. I don't know if anybody saw question time this week, but the one lady asked, what is, what is going to have to happen to make a difference when we're all of a sudden going to make a change? I have met far too many mothers and fathers that have buried their children. You know, this is what's going to make a difference because this is going to begin to affect us all. This is not going to go away unless we change social injustice and inequality.
Thank you. Hi there. Can I say, coming travelling down to, um, to England this morning, it was that thing of a bit of worry about me. I've read all the newspaper articles, I see all the violence that's down here. I actually left my staff proof vest in Glasgow. Because <laughs> just places are terrifying just now. Well, that is according to the press anyway. And of course, we are so safe. Glasgow has no violence in it whatsoever. <laughs> it is an absolute panacea. It's like living in East Timor or somewhere else in the South Sea Island. We just sing and dancing on each other every day. Now, of course, that's absolute crap. Now, Glasgow still has high levels of violence. It does. It still has homicide. It still has youth violence. It still has knife carrying. It still has drugs. It still has suicide. It still has mental health issues. It still has all the same problems that everyone else has. It's just that our trajectory is in a different direction. We're still coming down. We're not seeing the increase in youth violence that certain areas of this country are seeing. Our things like knife-related crime in terms of young people is down by 80%. Our average age of offending continues to increase on a year-by-year -year basis. Now, it's getting harder. We're not seeing the massive reductions we've once seen, and we're now at that tricky bit, that bit whereby actually all we're dealing with the real hard to change, hard to make difference to. We've got rid of the low-hanging fruit, and it's going to be challenging. What we know is from Scotland just now is approximately 0.85% of our population is responsible for 65% of our violence. That's about 42,000 people. 42,000 people represent 65% of our violence. Now, we talk about Glasgow being 500,000 people, Greater Glasgow being a million, Scotland being 5.2 million. But at 42,000, that's a manageable number. Considering there's 17,000 police officers, there's tens of thousands of teachers, there's multiple tens of thousands of people working in the health service and youth services and third sector and social services. Surely to God, we should be able to work with 42,000 people. And this is why we need to change. We need to change how we look at things. Yes, we do need universal provision of services, and we do need to look at the long-term public health approach and how we actually change things and how we actually secure and bubble wrap generations and educate and help people move forward. But we also have to deal with those who need significant help. Some of those may have to go to prison. You know, often in terms of the violence reduction, you know, they talk about the violence reduction that being, you know, I've seen things that were quite soft on crime. No, absolutely not. We helped increase sentencing in Scotland. But actually, that is of last resort. Most people, we believe, deserve a second chance. And most people, we believe, deserve to be listened to, to be helped and to be supported. And that's been a long journey for us. Hence this journey of resilience and understanding. And when I'm going to talk about resilience today, Sherry touched on this. There's three aspects of the resilience you can look at. One, the resilience in the people we're looking at. Two, Resilience in the service delivery models that we have in order to support that. But three, perhaps more importantly, I'm going to talk about your own personal resilience. I'm going to talk about the resilience of put, make, doing things differently. And as a community, of which we are, we need to look at how we can make change, how we can support each other, because it's challenging. Do just once what others say that you can't do, and you will never pay attention to their limitations again. So we're often described as being this public health model of delivery. And it's great listening to people talk about the public health model. I'm not sure anyone actually knows what it is. <laughs> I especially love politicians talk about it in question time. Every single one of them seems to know what happened in Glasgow. 
In fact, I made a joke to John Carnegie, one of our founders. I don't remember them being in the office when we discussed all this. <laughs> but every single one of them would tell us about it. I can explain the public health model quite simply in three slides. First of all, it's this. It's an improvement cycle. It's an improvement cycle of change. You need evidence, you need data, you need to understand. And that's triangulation of all your data sources and all coming from all your different services, from communities, from your health service, from your policing, from your social services, from surveys, from academia, bring it all together. Secondly, you understand your drivers of your risk factors. And I believe a lot of talk about risk this morning. But secondly, you have to understand what your protective factors is. What stops people? What bubble wraps people? What helps to protect people? What builds personal resilience? The trick is with that, the same mentoring programme may work for one person but not another. It's the same with risk factors and we talk big talk about adverse childhood experiences. We have to remember adverse childhood experiences is an actuarial model of risk. Statistically, it's correct. If you have four or more of these, you are more likely to die from cancer. You're more likely to get heart disease. You're more likely to go to prison. You're more likely to take drugs. You're more likely to have alcohol problems. You're more likely to end up in divorce. You're more likely to end up in low unemployment if you have four or more of these. However, I could turn around and say four people out of that ten with all these risk factors is going to end up in prison. I couldn't tell you which four. It's not an identification. You can't use it as a targeted identification model, but it does, does help you with understanding. Then you have to innovate and test. Small-scale tests of change. Understand how your programs work. Understand that the minute you start that program, you have to change it and get it to work within the environment that you're trying to set it. I steal programs from all over the world. Bring them to Glasgow and Scotland and think, right, okay, that's from Canada, that's from Australia, that's from America. We don't live in Canada, Australia or America, so I'm going to have to change them. Make them fit your context. Make them fit your problems. Because often what happens with these programs that are evidence-based is we fail in them and we think it's the program's fault. And we say the evidence is wrong. The reality is, it's not the evidence. Usually it's based off really good sound fundamentals of change, of behavioural change, of supporting people. The problem's more often in two things. One, we've misdiagnosed which population it goes to. And two, we fail to implement it correctly within the context we're trying to deliver it. So actually failures with ourselves and how we implement. So we get all that right, and then you scale up and embed. Conversations earlier about finance and funding. One of the things that we've built in is lessons learned, is actually funding runs out. As many of you know in this room from the Home Office funding, it's only till April next year. Fabulous, great, what happens past April? Well, actually, you need to plan for past April. So when we start to think programmes now, it's like we think, is this programme going to be a success? If it's going to be a success, how do we cascade it into everyday funding? How do we get into existing services, existing budget lines, existing service delivery models, rather than think it's going to require extra money? Because if you think about that, what will happen is it will disappear as something new and shiny comes and takes over it. So always think about past the funding time and how you're going to implement it. And once you do that, you start again, because you inevitably haven't fixed the problem. All you're doing is you're looking, every time you go around this cycle, you make it a little bit better. Each time, it's a reducing cycle. Secondly, it was touched on by Sherry here. We traditionally work at an individual level. We look and try to fix people. 
We fix people with programmes on mental health services, we fix people on addiction services, we might have anger management programmes, we might have gangs exiting programmes. We look at people. But people do not exist in isolation. They exist within relationships, they exist within community, and they exist in society. The challenge is, if you're only working at an individual level, your chances of success are limited. Classic example is from drug taking. If you are a drug user and you end up going to a nice leafy suburb, you say you come out to this lovely place here and you're sitting in a drug, <coughs> drug therapy and you're out of the way of it and then within three months the, the drug addiction's waned, you've received really good psychological services and we've dealt with that, and then after three months you're feeling good and healthy about yourself, you back, go back into the same societal pressures, the same community issues and the same relationships that you had before and you go back onto drugs. The problem is with that again, and this is why we continue with this mistake, individual treatments don't always fail. If they always failed, we'd stop doing it. They succeed sometimes. And it's that succeeding and sometimes we hope that it succeeds all the time. But we need to challenge across all of these areas. That's violence prevention in a nutshell. It's about enforcement, it's about prevention, and it's about attitudes. And I'm going to touch on the attitudes bit about this. I'm talking about not just the attitudes of the young people or the people we're looking at in terms of involving criminality and violence. It is about gangs, but sometimes it's about the most problematic gangs that we have. And the most problematic gangs that we have are social services, policing, health, third sector, community justice. We sometimes work against each other. We hold on to our budgets, we hold on to our targets, we hold on to our KPIs. We need to work better with each other. We need to break those barriers. We need to have more trust in each other. We talk about accountability and governance. Actually, can we just start with trust? Can we just start with trust between people that actually we can share information because actually GDPR allows us to do it? We can just start with trust that I trust you to deliver a service, I trust you to help that person, I trust you to look at delivery, rather than think we can do everything. That's where you need to start. You also need to think about where you're working. Organised crime at the very top is very difficult to challenge. We didn't. We started with the peer group and street norms because actually you've got a better chance of actually reducing it in prevention. You're thinking about long-term strategies. Your long-term strategy is to stop the flow upwards. So start here with prevention work. Don't think you can change people's minds all the time at organised crime. There will be people that come out of it and there will be people that want to change their life. But actually you get more success down this bottom end. It is about enforcement. It's about services. It's about communities. And communities allow you to put this bubble wrap around people. It allows you to help support. It allows you to protect victims and identify vulnerabilities. But it allows you to put pressure on offending behaviour. So actually, if community pressure is there, offenders find it more difficult to offend. It's about jobs. It's about communities of support. And it is about resilience in ACEs. And one of the key lessons we took from schools, and school-based education is really good for this, absenteeism from school. Four or more ACEs, 31%. They put in two things, no cost, treating people with fairness and giving them some additional opportunity in schools. Reduced absenteeism from 31% to 13%. Poor childhood health, which has a massive impact on our economy. 60% to 21% by providing a role model, giving them opportunities and having supportive friends. They don't cost a lot of money. They're just about shifting how we deal with people and how we work with people. We don't need to always think it needs to be, take a big programme. It just sometimes takes an attitudinal shift within ourselves. It's about listening to people. 
It's not about talking to them. It's about listening to them and then taking action and then supporting them. And this, I'm going to leave you with a quote. And it's a quote that my old boss said. And I'll tell you the story behind this. Do what you can and start where you're at. This is complicated stuff. We had a police officer, a sergeant, come into the office one day and he was asking me to do community resilience work and actually do building asset-based work. And he was really worried because he had no idea what to do. And he came in and spoke to John Carnican, my old boss, and said, boss, I don't know what I'm doing. I might make it worse. He says, listen, you might make it worse. You might make it better. He says, but you know what? You bloody won't make it worse. It's already crap out there, son. So actually... That's what we need to think about. Are you going to make it better or worse by what you intend to do? Don't think about KPIs. Don't think about that. Just think about the outcomes, and that's all we need to concentrate on. Thank you. Okay, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, I hope it's been a, uh, a good and productive day so far. So I'm sorry if uh, I'm going to repeat perhaps some of the things that might have already been said about funding and some of the wider context, but uh, I think it's right that, certainly as chair of the APCC, but also as the PCC for West Yorkshire, wearing two hats here today, uh, that I do touch on some of those wider issues. Um, so it's really good to hear those last two presentations and get a real insight into work in both London and Glasgow. I, I, I can guarantee you that I haven't been up to, uh, to Glasgow <laughs> to, uh, to make that visit, but I know some of my officers have, or sorry, officers in West Yorkshire have, uh, to look, along with many others, I'm sure. So uh, I thought it'd be useful today just to set out uh, some of the key work that the APCC uh, has been undertaking to try and address uh, the growing issue of serious violence, and also look at what, what are the positive impacts that we can hopefully collectively make uh, with many of you in this room and, and other agencies and colleagues throughout um, England and Wales. So, in terms of some of the background, and actually this week I've spent a bit of time uh, in a couple of schools in West Yorkshire, in Leeds and in Bradford, and spent some time visiting some of the community initiatives that I'm actually funding at the moment. And it's really important to keep your feet on the ground and, and make sure that we are as aware as we can be of what's actually going on in some of our communities. And, and there are some difficult truths sometimes that we, we find in some of our towns and cities. And although some of the biggest issues are felt in our cities, uh, there's no doubt that in my view the problem goes much further than cities and into towns, rural areas, and uh, what are the things we can then look to do around preventative measures in trying to get upstream and when the the government serious violence strategy was launched back in 2018 now i think at that time myself and many other police and crime commissioners were clear that and we said at the time that early intervention and prevention needed to be a much bigger focus not only for policing but in community safety generally if we are to really address and stop the trends in violent crime and we, and we know, don't we, that policing alone isn't going to address this. Yes, we've got a key role to play around enforcement and providing reassurance and uh, confidence in our communities, but we know that, that there are so many other 
agencies and communities themselves that need to be involved. So I, we did welcome recently the duty to consult uh, or the, the duty to cooperate consultation that the government announced um, around public health. Uh, but again, uh, more partners need to be involved if we are to really make a step change and head in the, the, the right direction. And I believe, and I would say this wouldn't I, that PCCs, I think, are very well placed to lead and coordinate strategies and work at a local level because we are elected across very large geographic areas. And uh, the references that have just been made around working with other agencies, we all know it's hard yards in, in getting those relationships right with local authorities, mental health trusts, uh, probation prisons, but it's absolutely key if we are to make a real difference in my view. So this slide really just sets out some of the figures recently uh, that the, Ho the Home Office have announced and actually only this week we had the finally a an announcement of an extra 35 million um, going into the violence reduction unit approaches. And that's slightly frustrating because as we know we're already into uh, three, three months into this financial year and as has already been said we need a much longer commitment to this not just a 12 month <coughs> commitment around sustained funding so obviously now we know that it's Boris Johnson and uh, Jeremy Hunt uh, I really hope they are going to prioritise policing and community safety much more uh, than perhaps what has been in recent years and uh, you know, I, I really hope that is the case, so we will uh, be lobbying them very closely in terms of an APCC uh, position on that, and I'm sure along with the NPCC and others in policing. And whilst Police and Crime Commissioners and other community safety partners I know are um, undertaking a number of local initiatives already, uh, we absolutely need to look at how we strategically coordinate the funding. And uh, as, a, as it says on that slide, actually the funding covers just 18 PCC and force areas and that's been assessed on data um, from accidents and emergency um, units and uh, I think one of the, uh, the disappointments was that they didn't deem that the police data that we have, uh, whether it's through HMIC or the force management statements, they didn't feel it was robust enough to use in that funding allocation which I think uh, is a mistake, um, given the, the work that's gone on there. Uh, but, but clearly, you know, the accident and emergency data is very important, but it's, it's not the only data. So it is welcome, the additional funding. Uh, and in West Yorkshire, just as an example, uh, we have lost around about £140 million since 2010. That equates to around about 2,000 police officers. And, you know, that has a massive impact, and it's a very similar story across most police forces uh, in England and Wales. And yes, police and crime commissioners, we've pretty much all raised our precepts to the maximum level. Very recently, the additional £24, the flexibility that we were given, and we are starting to rebuild, but we know this takes time, um, and it, it just cannot be addressed within 12 months uh, it, it's, it's over a period of time and you can only raise so much clearly through the local policing precept. So it's important that we recognise the austerity 
that policing has had to face because it's in a wider context along with uh, youth services, health, education, who are all facing real challenges uh, in terms of what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. So we have called and been calling for for some time a whole system approach to tackling serious violence. I sit on the, uh, the National Violence Task Force as chair of the APCC. That's chaired by the Home Secretary. There's a number of other government ministers, uh, there's the third sector, policing, um, and it's, it's a good forum to be fair, and I, I, I do welcome that. Um, but as I said to the Home Affairs Select Committee earlier this year, with my, that uh, also we should look at reviewing the effectiveness of community safety partnerships, uh, because they were introduced, and there's another link to one of our other colleagues in the room, who was around when the, the, uh, the Crime and Disorder Act 1998 was brought into being to establish community safety partnerships but I think we would all recognise now that there are varying, um, it's varying effectiveness around those CSPs up and down the country so we would welcome a review into that as well and not for now but certainly um, when you look at the in my view the reform that's required within the wider criminal justice system uh, whether that's to help, help reduce reoffending, uh, the CRC announcement uh, or an acknowledgement that that hasn't worked in terms of the splitting up of the probation service, um, the effectiveness of our courts and uh, the CPS, all, all the system is under huge pressure. And if we don't get every part of this right in moving forward, then uh, the, the gaps will still remain and victims of crime will particularly uh, not be best served in terms of not looking at that wider reform. Um, drugs is mentioned there obviously and uh, again um, going out and talking to police officers on the front line and communities unfortunately we know that is still a massive driver of the the gang and criminal activity uh, in, in the particular turf wars that go on within our communities. I would dare suggest again that uh, the review of, uh, of, of drugs and substance misuse is long overdue uh, at the government level and, and I think we need to push for that as well. Also, um, I also wanted to mention the business of um, school exclusions because uh, again one of our colleagues David Jamieson, PCC in West Mids, done a lot of work on this and I'm not here to criticise teachers because I, you know, I've been a school governor for 20 years and I know the pressures that they face on a daily basis in their class classrooms, but there is growing evidence that a number of children are being excluded uh, on a permanent basis. Uh, there's also the business of off-rolling. Uh, this is the uh, where pupils disappear from school rosters at certain times, and I'm not sure we've got an absolutely full picture of what is going on there, and what we do know is that uh, kids that are not in mainstream education and potentially out on the streets or even if they've been referred to a, a pupil referral unit uh, there is again evidence that some of the attendance at that is less than good and they are very vulnerable then to being exposed by criminal jag uh, gangs through drugs and, and uh, obviously getting drawn into violence, violence and knife crime. So again uh, there's been a recent report by the Children's Commissioner Anne Longfield, she makes the link to members of gangs uh, that have been excluded from schools 
and unfortunately it does appear that the age range is getting younger and teachers very often tell me that we need to be into junior and primary schools now around key messages and interventions otherwise we've potentially lost lost the uh, the battle as it were with some of the old, older children so you'll see there from some of the figures or some of the um the, the comments there in recent years including permanent exclusions which rose by 67 percent from 2012-13 to 2016-17 clearly that's a concern for all of us and there's a number of recommendations within that report which i would urge you to have a look at uh, which do merit some real uh, close consideration there's the timson review also that recently commented on this around the use of exclusions um, and in my view again the Ofsted inspection regime uh, hasn't helped in terms of a concentration on too much of the academic side of things rather than the inclusivity of schools and again head teachers uh, tell me this all the time um, and, and is it a result of the fragmented education system that we now have as well in terms of free schools academies the role of local, local education authorities are clearly not what they were. Has the balance gone too far the other way? I just pose that question. And then finally, again, when I visit a lot of the, uh, the, the communities and areas, the decimation in some cases of youth services um, is having a real impact because, you know, I'm not saying that if there was a youth centre in every community that would necessarily get all the kids turning up there, but not having those dedicated outreach youth workers uh, I think is a, is a huge mistake because uh, they, are, they are often the people who, have, who, who are mentors and they engage with some of the harder, harder, harder to reach groups on their territory and, and, and make a big difference in my view. So um, I think that, that is something to watch very closely as well and we should call for uh, more support for youth services in particular if we are to really uh, radically address some of the issues. As I've said, we've had the, the announcements around the VRU funding, which we welcome, early intervention youth fund earlier this year as well, which many PCCs helped coordinate successful bids for, but it is no substitute for sustained uh, central funding, hopefully to be addressed in the next CSR, and that's why we need to make sure the prime ministerial candidates are fully aware of that. Sorry, I just finally wanted to mention also, um, I've got some work underway with Huddersfield University and our youth offending teams looking at the impact of social media. And again, I think there's emerging evidence that uh, social media users, particularly in the, uh, in the younger ages, uh, are being influenced and uh, gang activity is being coordinated through, so, through social media um, and although it isn't limited to social media, again I think there probably does need to be some research done into the, the violent computer games uh, that are often uh, heavily advertised um, and you know the violence and all the sort of gratuitous violence that goes on there surely that isn't a positive impact on, on many of our young children and I think that needs to be factored into the research as well. Uh, so um, I know we're coming to, to the close week. Um, I just wanted to highlight a few of the initiatives 
uh, that, that I've certainly been involved in within West Yorkshire, uh, the work that the APCC has highlight, highlighted and will continue to highlight. But just to finish off by saying, I think, again, just to re-emphasise this business of a whole system approach, because if we cannot come together uh, with local authorities, youth services, education, schools, to support our young people and provide positive opportunities, then uh, clearly the journey into reducing violence is going to be much harder for all of us. And I think we've all got a duty to work with our children of today to make sure we haven't got a generation that is lost in some cases to the world of opportunity, uh, good education and work in setting a better society for the future. Thanks.